Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Smathers and Branson. They are back, uh, you know, they've been supporting the pod. This These products are phenomenal. I uh, They sent me a little care package. I had already had some Smathers belts, but a, a big revelation is their hats. They're incredible. They have a performance hat. They have a regular hat, like a regular, your regular cotton hat. I love this thing. Uh, they sent me the dancing bear, the Grateful Dead uh, uh, logo, you know, the iconic uh, dancing bear hat. It's like my new favorite hat. I wear it all the time. People are always asking me, Deadhead are asking me what my favorite album is, you know, and then, you know, other people are like, where's that from? They think it's from like a course. It would be a sick course logo. But anyways, Smathers Brands, they got all kinds of gear on their website. They have over 115 colleges and universities, MLB, NFL, NHL. They've got other bands. They've got Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer gear, uh, belts, you know, wallets, luggage tags. They have all kinds of needlepoint goods. They're really classy, durable. Like, you know, the belts that I've had for a couple years are still in great shape. Uh, you can get 15% off your entire order plus free shipping if you use the code fried egg that's just one word fried egg this is great father's day gifts you know so if you know your wife's scrambling to look for for something or you are scrambling to look for your partner or your husband for something get them some smathers gear at smathersandbranson.com that's smathersandbranson.com fried egg Today's episode is a uh, a good one, I think. That's my opinion, though. You can tell us if you like it or not. But we have the great Michael Clayton, former European tour player, golf course architect, golf course critic, golf course analyst, golf writer. I mean, this guy is a jack-of-all-trades, one of the best golf minds that we have in the world. Uh, Michael has not been on the pod in quite some time. I think he was one of my first... 15 episodes uh and he has a bet back on which is regrettable i mean i should have him on much more often than i do and we're going to remedy that today he joined me late last week we talked a little bit about the u.s women's open a a lot of preview stuff but not a lot of preview a little bit of preview stuff but we're going to keep that in and with the u.s women's open we were having garrett morrison our managing editor and will knights come on after michael and we'll break down that as well as some other thing, prescient things in golf. So stick around after Clates, who we talk about, you know, the U.S. Women's Open, Phil Mickelson's win at Kiowa and Kiowa, and then, you know, some world tour ideas and also his uh, upcoming work at Seven Mile Beach in Tasmania. So without further ado, here's Mike Clayton and uh, stick around for Garrett and Will later in the episode. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. So we we haven't talked uh, on this podcast at all about about Phil winning. I've been traveling like crazy. 
What do you uh, did you watch much of the PGA? Uh, I didn't. I watched the last twelve holes. What do you What do you think of uh, of Keela? The little you saw it again. I thought the mowing lines were why are all the bunkers in the rough? <laughs> you know, I, 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 again, I mean, make the make make it all short grass. The scores were pretty high. You know, it was, you know, it was a USGA type scoring deal. So, I well, the scores were high because the elements. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. I, I don't think it would have played any easier. And it, I I wrote something up about um about some notes about the setup. Like you know they had rough where it would stop balls from going into the into the water. You know, like the bailout yeah. left it because of this rough just stops it. And it's just silly. Then you have bunkers in the rough. You it, it just I don't think the course would have played significantly easier if it was any wide if it was wider. And the original concept was water wall short grass, right? Mm-hmm. I assume. Yeah. So, so how was it? I don't, I don't remember, but it wasn't set up that way for the Ryder Cup in '91. I assume, no. and that was, you know, that was brutally difficult. So, so I remember that playing that last, watching that last day in '91, where maybe Faldo hit that 14th green, maybe I, that par three. I, I, you know, it was just group after group couldn't hit it on that green. It was such a difficult shot. So it's not like it needed rough to make it difficult, but. You know, I thought what Mickelson did was amazing. Um, I've long, I mean, he's clearly you know, worked hard, lost a lot of weight. He's, he's doing lots of speed training to keep his club head speed up with the younger guys. I suspect, I'm, I'm not sure if this is right, but I suspect that the modern equipment has kept the older guys in the game more than it used to. Yeah, you, you know, I'm not sure if that's right. I mean, Julius Boros was a great player at 48. Sam Sne- People forget that Sam Sneed was, I think, fourth ninth and third in his 60th 61st and 62nd year in the in the uspga mm-hmm. so, so you know the equipment wasn't keeping sam sneed in it sam sneed was keeping himself in it by just being an amazing player and you know peter thompson if he was here would the first thing he would say was see i told you long swings last longer mm-hmm. you know he, he loved the way sneed played and he would love mickelson's big long backswing because you know, his take of observing golf for, for the longest time was that long swings lasted longer. And he would point to Mickelson at 50 saying, see, I told you. And it's, it's such a cool thing for a sport to be able to do. And Watson was nearly almost 10 years older when he did it. I mean, imagine I mean, Djokovic or Nadal winning French Opens in their, you know, 50, when they're 50. Yeah. Mind you, the way, mind you, the way Nadal goes on clay, he still might, but... Um, yeah, it's an incredible thing about the game that people can still be competitive at that age. And for me, that was almost the biggest take out of Phil winning was that it showed what a, what a cool game it is. Yeah, it was amazing too. I, you know, the crowd, it showed kind of Phil's gravitas because he, he was playing with Brooks Kepka, who's won four majors in the last like three years, four years. And, uh, you know, there was there were very few Brooks fans in the in the crowd. Yeah, I mean, it was just unbelievable. Yeah, and I, I can't, I, I don't know him. I've met him once. I don't know him at all, and I just really like the way he plays. I really like the way he is. I'm, you know, he seems like he turns a lot of people off, but I just kind of think he's a from the outside, and it's always impossible to tell from the outside what someone's really like. But I've always liked the way he played. I've always liked his attitude. I just. I think he's a cool guy. Yeah, I, I like the fact he went to Europe and played on the Challenge Tour and worked his way up through there. I just think he's taken a different path to where he's got to, and I think he's an amazing player. But you're right; he was a bit part. 
you know, it must have been so frustrating. And, uh, you know, again, I, you know, I mean, Phil played him like it. I mean, what, what, well, the best take I heard on what happened that day was your pod with Brennan about just walking around and, and observing the crowd. You know, Mickelson on 11 where he kind of didn't hear Brooks screaming at him about old play, old play. And, you know, that was a great take on what happened that day. The experience really showed off, especially in that back nine. Like, he was patient. It was, you know, I think every everybody that's played competitive golf has been there where, you know, Brooks was just having one of those days where things weren't going right, but he never was that out of it until the early in that back nine, and, and he just kind of shot himself in the foot with some, you know, he missed a short putt. He hit it in the in the, in the the schmutz on, uh, what was it, on uh, on 13. But Phil, yeah. Phil didn't really do anything except just not make a big mistake. Yeah. And, you know, it was interesting. Talking about this Naomi Osaka, I mean, this is a long bow to draw, the Naomi Osaka fiasco this week. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the pod I listened to, to that you did, you could only explain what really happened by seeing what the what Kepka's ball was doing in the air. I think, I think it was the 11th hole, that part five read. It, you know, blew it up in the air. And ten. Or, or ten. 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 You know, if you're sitting in the press tent, you can't see that. You can't see what that ball does. You have, you've got to be on the side on the, and you've actually got to see what the ball does. So the, the Osaka thing about not talking to the press, this is a bad analogy perhaps, but if you can sit down and watch a tennis match and then go and report on what happened, you don't need a quote from the press. No. Player. I mean, just go watch what happened and tell us what happened. So your pod, you know, when I listen to it, it's like that explained perfectly Okay, now I know what happened because there was someone out there who saw what Brooks's ball did. If you sat in the press tent, you couldn't see that. Yeah, I, I mean, it was clear. Like, because the thing that was interesting about that was like he had that ball and it was in the short rough, which you would think would be, you know, that that's keeping the spin off the ball. Like, I actually, I, I kind of sometimes really like when the ball's in the short rough when I'm heading into the wind because I know, hey, it's gonna it's gonna flight pretty easy. Yeah, you know, yeah. and the way it it got eaten up. And then Phil hit, you know, that punch seven. It was just, that was such a beautiful shot that he hit. Yeah. Um, you know, and he drew it and then he talked about it in, on live from after about how he, you know, if I hit the punch seven or if I drew the seven, I knew the wind was going to take, I think he said 12 off. If I faded yeah. it, I knew it was going to take 30 off and Brooks hits that little fade. And that's, yeah. that's exactly what happened to Brooks's was it, it took 30 off. I was actually, I rewatched the telecast just to, you know, see what was going on. And I was surprised that the ball didn't plug. And I, I thought it might plug when I was watching it, the way it floated in. I mean, it looked like a hit brick wall. Um, but yeah. then at, following that, his distance control was off almost every approach shot. He was long, then he was short. And, you know, it when the elements, I think this is why we see the open the way it is, where older guys compete in the open why watson almost won one is when elements are are the big driver when elements are the key difficulty of a golf course all of a sudden then experience matters a ton and being able to hit a lot of shots it's yeah i i'd be interested to to see with i feel like you know a lot of the guys that get to the very top have a lot of interests or played a lot of sports other than golf growing up? I think that's probably true. You know, I know that the, the head of the, 
the Sports Institute in, in Melbourne, which, which started the golf program, the first two players out of that were Appleby and Allenby. They were always big on kids playing other sports. I mean, Brad Hughes was a really good footballer. Um, Bob Shearer, too. Um, you know, I think good athletes are good athletes, and they're, and they're always going to be good at other sports. Mm-hmm. Not always, but but I think it's a mistake to focus, you know, as a six or seven or eight-year-old, and you can bet there are plenty of them out there now, focusing solely on golf. It can't be a great thing. For, you know, but they either get burned out because they're fed up with it by the time they're 16, or they – and they miss out on the fun of playing team sports and playing other sports. And, and it doesn't kind of develop that innate, innate athletic skill. But I guess, you know, how much other sport did Tiger play? That's a good point. That's what I was just thinking about. And I don't think he played much of anything. So, you know, the greatest golfer of all time is the uh, yeah. is the foil. But but you look at, like, Rory, obviously, famously played soccer forever. You know, he broke his yeah. ankle in the middle of, middle of yeah. one of the best major runs. Uh, and uh, you got Brooks up there that, that's played a ton of, ton, you know, ton of other sports, baseball being one of them. But, you know, I, one of the most amazing things I think about Phil is that he hasn't lost his nerve on the greens. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that, a, again, is that just a cliche thing in golf that, you know, started off back with Gene Sarazen where, you know, the older you get, the more you lose your nerve on the greens. I'm like, is that, when you look at those old tapes of guys playing in the, up until, I mean, Palmer had the classic kind of flippy wrist and stroke. All those guys had kind of, Strokes that were bound to get yippy as they got older. Yet Bob Charles was the one guy from that era who, who had the shoulder kind of triangle thing all, all, all working together. I mean, Charlie never got the yips. He was an amazing part of his whole career. Mm-hmm. And, and he was the best you know, putter I ever saw. So I, I wonder if that goes back to guys saying, well, you know, you, you lose your nerve on the greens as you get older because that was a product of guys with flippy wristed strokes losing their nerve as they got older. When did- Whereas, you know, technically, I mean, Mickelson's got a stroke that's a lot like Bob Charles's stroke. So, you know, as, as you get older, if you've got more of that free-flowing kind of altogether, much less wristy stroke, Ben Crenshaw again, um, you know, is that what saves you? Mm-hmm. As opposed to that Palmer type, you know, that, that really flippy wristed, you know, stroke that he had where, you know, Palmer would complain about, you know, losing his nerve in his 40s. But, I mean, Jack never lost his nerve. It's, it's, uh, when did that, the technique change from the flippy stroke to the predominant, you know, what we see today? Uh, probably in the 70s, I guess. And it, was it because the greens got better and it became, was that, was that flippy stroke because of the slow greens? It probably was. If you've gone, I played the Taiwan Open a few times when I was a kid. Um, on the worst greens you've ever imagined. I mean, they're horrific greens, worse than putting on fairways. And all those guys had that flippy stroke. It looked like they were doing it to almost to flip the ball up above the grass and, and get it top spinning. So, you know, that probably had something to do with it. But, but I suspect the influence of Charles and Crenshaw had, you know, had, had quite a bit to do with it the way they stroked the ball and putted. But you're right, as greens got better, then, then that flippy wrist and stroke disappeared. But the greens were always great in Australia. Mm-hmm. 
and 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 Kel Nagel was our best player. Kel was kind of he was more of a Gary player type pop stroke. He would break his wrist as he took it back and pop it into the ground and sort of jab the putter. And he was an amazing putter his whole career. But um, you know, we we you know, I suspect in Australia, you know, I, I had guys who worked for Claude Crockford in the in the sixties at Royal Melbourne. They said the greens were pure then. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Thompson was a risky kind of putter. You know, I think perhaps it was a product of, you know, younger Thompson probably watched, you know, well, I'm not sure he watched anyone play, but, you know, Bobby Jones was a dominant player of the era he grew up in. And, and he loved how Sneed played. And Sneed was a kind of flippy wristed putter. Hogan, same. So perhaps that was just the way they did it because they just copied each other. I'm not sure. And I think there's, you know, there's a, without mentioning names, there's probably a pretty direct correlation between alcohol and the yips as well as you get older. <laughs> Go and take a run at my boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where, anyway. uh, where do you put Phil... Um, I think it's a bit trivial to go back to like, you know, Bobby Jones. You know? Yeah. Like it's just impossible to compare across a hundred yeah. years, you know, it's just, yeah, it it's is, just kind yeah. of silly. Um, let's just say like, you know, from kind of the Palmer player, Nicholas era on where, where, where does Phil fall in your kind of tiers of players? I, th- I think you could put Jack and Jack and, Tiger kind of in their own stratosphere. Um, yeah. Where, yeah. Where, where does everybody else fall in there? Well, I guess, you know, six and seven majors seems, well, I mean, player with, with what did play of nine? Mm-hmm. Then, you know, Watson, Palmer, Trevino, Phil, Feldo, Seve, Ernie kind of just perhaps hanging on to that group. You know, but th- those guys, so six, seven, eight, nine majors are all a- around the same mark, you would think. But because they're such, you know, to judge someone purely by number is such a fickle thing. Yes. Because, you know, we know that what a fine line there is between, you know, S- Scott Hope makes that putt on the 10th Grand Augusta and Faldo's back with Seve. Y- you, know, you know, is Scott Hope missing a two-foot putt, the defining thing between Faldo's career and Seve's career? Shouldn't be, you know. So, so, you know, if you put, if you lumped Phil Palmer, Seve, Fowler, Trevino all in the same group, it's pretty hard to split them. I mean, you know, I think, you know, I think Palmer gets more points for, you know, making golf cool in America. Seve gets more points for opening up golf in, in, in Europe. Phil gets points for how the fans have continued to love him forever. You know, I mean, you know, Torino in, in his own unique way contributed a massive amount to the game. Player because he played all around the world. Watson because of what he did at the Open. So, so they've all done amazing things for the game just outside of the number of majors they won. That's the thing too, like Trevino's like backstory and how he got there. Like you know, and then the fact the guy got struck by lightning twice. He still yeah. won six majors. Yeah, no, he, he, and, and what an, an incredible player. And, and I think Ernie gets hard done by in, in the second best player of the Tiger generation argument because he had such an incredible record outside of the uh, PGA Tour in America. 
I mean, Ernie won at Royal Melbourne, he won at Muirfield, he, he won at Wentworth, he won in South Africa. I mean, Ernie won all over the world. And Phil, for, you know, for the longest time, Phil had a pretty miserable record outside the United States. And, yeah, and, and he, you know, almost his defining major was the one at Muirfield. Yeah. Even more so than this one where he proved he could. I mean, his record in the Open was atrocious given how good a player he was for the longest time. But what he did at Muirfield, and as well as he played that day, I mean, that was amazing golf he played that day. So, so that you know, that to me was almost the, the almost more defining major of of, of of his career than this one. His his whole career is such a crazy case. Just the, all the struggles till he won one. You know, he has like yeah. I mean, the first Masters is a defining. He has. In a way, he's got like three defining moments now where he's got the, I think the Masters, the Muirfield win, and then this one is like an emphatic exclamation mark on the, on the career. And, you know, who knows if he'll, I'm I'm sure he'll contend in something, you know, I, I, you know, if you asked me nine months ago, I might say he was completely toast because he, but you know, I'm sure he'll contend in an open or or maybe a Masters down the line here if he, you know, given how well he played. Yeah, and and you know, when do you win that thing? In, when he was an amateur, 1991. Yeah. So, you know, thir- thirty years is that. That's an amazingly long career, incredible career. But going back to what we were talking about before, and it's always struck me as amazing that between you think of all the great shots, Sam Snead. Arnold Palmer and Phil Mickelson have hit in the US Open. All of them. You know, you could put a highlight reel together that would last for a day and they've got one between them. I mean, how can that be right? And, and to me, it goes back to the, the setup. I mean, it goes back to the setup. How, how can those three incredible players have one US Open between them? It just doesn't seem right. You know, if I was a USGA, I'd be looking saying, what do we do to screw this up so badly that those three incredible players won one year or something between them? And then they're going to say, well, Jones won four and Hogan won four and Jack won four and Willie Anderson won four, so take that. And, you know, good argument. But Sneed never won a US Open. Nicholson never won a US Open for all the great golf they played there. And partly it was luck and partly it was, you know, but partly it was perhaps the fairways were too narrow. Yeah, I mean, it's it, because it becomes not a, about skill when the fairways get so narrow, you know. Because but Curtis Strange is going to say, and, and it's a legitimate point: you got to hit the ball straight. You got to drive the ball in the fairway. Not anymore. Well, that's I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to be the last guy to disagree with that. And, and clearly that's the way it's going. So, you know, I go back, you know, I keep putting that thing up on Twitter about those, that round in 1969 where Arnold Palmer at Champions, his average iron into a, into a, into a green was a four iron. Yeah. And if you give, you know, if you, if you average a drive out at 300 yards and you average a, a, a five iron out at 190 yards and do the math, it's 8,300 yards to create the same test. And, and if the course is 8,300 yards long, you have the fairways 50 yards wide. And it's, and it's still going to be a tough test. I wish I had in front of me. I, there, I have the, in the Oakland Hills book, um, they've got all the irons that Hogan hit. 
into the yeah and in the fifty open, and it's like I think he hit seven or eight three irons or more. Well, I mean, probably the well, certainly one of the best par fives in America is the sixteenth at Shinnecock, which is which is an amazing second shot par five. But I mean, the art of building a great par five is building a tee shot that's kind of just build a tee shot and then build a great short par four from there. Well, that's the thing. It's like it, what you what you were saying is what I started thinking when you said build a great short par four. Unfortunately, what's happened is after the tee shot, it's a long par three now. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. what. Uh, so obviously, you know, this Saudi Arabia thing, the PGL has been kind of hanging over the, you know, it seems like, to a certain extent, it's uh, it's died down. It's back to the drawing board. But one of the things that I have heard, you know, just rumblings, nothing confirmed or anything about is the idea of a a higher level tour and more, you know, where, you know, the best players are playing more often, say, 20 times a year, um, potentially across across the world more than the you know, PGA tour now, I, you know, what are your thoughts behind obviously the idea of a world tour? I think it's obviously been long rumored. You've been, you know, one of your countrymen's been long a, a champion of this. And I'm, I'm curious what, you know, if you could give us the history maybe of, of the idea of a world tour and what your general thoughts are. Well, lots of things. Um, well, the European tour is a world tour, really. Yeah. Outside of the United States, I think if 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 in nineteen seventy if in nineteen eighty you could have sat Felder, Nick Price, Norman, Seve, Langer, Lyle, all those great non-American players in a room and said, "Okay, we've got a chance to make an amazing tour outside of America, where if we stick together." We go to a promoter or, or promoters and we create something outside of the United States where we can all play. We can create what, what in 40 years' time is going to be the greatest tour in the world. They could have done that. It, it would have been like Formula One car racing versus NASCAR, I guess. I'm not that familiar with car racing in America, but you know, the, the great big circus that goes around the world that is Formula One, they could have created that same thing. So the where every great non-American player, that was, that's where they'd be playing now. But that never happened. So, you know, the PJ Tour is, became even, you know, it's even bigger now than it was then. Well, so, I think part of that you know, too is, you know, the, the dominant players shifted where, you know, at that time in the 80s, the, the best players in the world were worldwide players. And, and now you've, the pendulum's kind of swung to where the best players of the world are American. Uh, yeah, probably. Well, Rory's not American. Uh, you, yeah. yeah, there are lots of great non-American players. I, but I, I, oh, contraire. I was, I was walking with a, uh, a sibling of a, uh, a player who, who's, who's just said, well, Rory's pretty much an American now. <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah. The first proponent of a, of a world tour was Peter Thompson. But unlike Greg, he actually, well, which is not fair on Greg, you know, because Greg played a lot around the world. But Thompson actually went and started the Japanese tour and the Asian tour by going and playing a lot of his golf there when he was the biggest non-American player in the world. So this will kind of amaze some listeners, but 
Peter Thompson, one year, passed up an invitation to play at Augusta to play in the Indian Open in Calcutta. That was how committed Thompson was to playing. And it's also a commentary on perhaps the Masters in the mid-60s wasn't as big as, as yeah. it is now. But, um, you know, Thompson was a go, got off his ass and went and played in Japan and played in Asia. He, you know, he basically started the Asian tour because he realised that golf was a bigger game than the than the sixty plus jobs it offered players in America, so it was up to him and Locke and, and the best overseas players to create something outside of the US. So, so he was a huge player in Britain, on the continent and around the world. So you know, so that was really and and, and he was always a big supporter of let's create a world tour, mm-hmm. but it never really happened because America always had the money and it always had the best players and. You know, it was just always what it was. It was always bigger than everything else. And when Tiger came along and the money exploded, then inevitably you had all of the best players, all, all the best Australians, all the best Europeans went to America to play because that was where the money was. Yeah, because right at the beginning of Tiger, the European tour was still a pretty good force and you could argue maybe had better players at the top. You know, they had Westwood, Montgomery... Uh, Nick Price, you know, it, it, the, at the right at the beginning, end of the 90s, you know, and then you had Sergio come on the scene at the end of the 90s, you know, but that was, you know, the 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 2000s are, is where it just completely shifted. Yeah. Well, in fair, fair, I mean, Nick Price hadn't been in Europe since 1983. Yeah. But, um, you know, people forget or, or, or probably never knew that in 1990, the prize money on the Japanese tour was almost the same as the American tour because the yen was so strong. It was amazing how much money they were playing for in Japan in 1990. It was a huge tour. You know, then the economy kind of collapsed and the, and the prize money hasn't really moved since then. But you're right, you know, Tiger's influence was incredible. The money exploded. All those guys realised that if they could play well on the PGA Tour, they could make so much money than they could outside of the US. But, you know, golf's a, golf's a better game when it's more diverse. When you see, watching Tiger play the President's Cup at Royal Melbourne was just incredible to watch that guy play that golf course. The course is not long, but, the, you know, it's a, the greens are rock hard. It was, it was windy. It was, it was summer. To watch Tiger play that golf course was just a masterclass in genius golf. And the more the game can show off that multidimensional weather, you know, and, and the only way to do that is to go around the world and play. Can't, the PJ Tour can't do it because it's so one-dimensional in, in what you see every week, going back to the, you know, the, the long grass around the greens. And it's not this, but, you know, narrow sailways, high grass, let, not so much wind. And, you know, they're all generalisations, but, you know, it gets very one-dimensional compared with what you could show off around the world. Well, I and, think it's not, it's not a, a coincidence that, Royal Melbourne played so un-American and it was the best chance the internationals have had to win in a President's Cup yeah. in a long time. Like, would golf be overall professional golf and interest in professional golf be in a better space if, say, say, you know, the tour eventually gets to a place where the top players play every, you know, maybe say 20 times a year. And then there's a feeder tour that feeds into the premier tour and 
but then you know the counter thing is that there'd be more time for other events in terms of whether it be women, more airtime for women's events, more airtime for college golf, more airtime for amateur golf. Do you think the game would end up being better than having, you know, 50 weeks a year of, of uh, PGA Tour golf? Yeah, the PGA Tour plays too much golf, doesn't it? Seems to me it does. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, it's, I mean it's not that the Australian Tour really matters. It, ma- it matters if you're Australian, but Europe extending outside of April and, and, and the end of September, which is when it was played in 1980. Now, the, the Europeans figured, well, well, they worked out they could play in South Africa, they could go to the Middle East, they could play in Australia. So Australia was great when Nicholas and Palmer and Player would come down in November in the 60s and early 70s, and then Faldo and Seve and Langer would come down in fe- January and February, Sam Torrance, all those guys would come down in the 80s and 90s because there was no play in Europe. So you're figuring out that it could go for 12 months and the PGA Tour going for 12 months kind of killed off interesting tours around the world, which is a small thing, but it still matters, I think. But the PGA Tour playing forever, you know, 50 weeks a year doesn't do golf any good at all, nor does it do the PGA Tour any good at all. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that the PGA, all, all PGAs, the players' unions. And the job of the players' union is, is to give their members as many playing opportunities as they can. And, and the great disruptor of that would be the PGL, which would steal away the best. And as much as I hate the idea of stealing away the best players and having them for yourself, it just steals away the best players from the union. So it completely weakens the union. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, which in the end, which in the end, it can't be a good thing. Well, so rather than blow the PJ Tour up, perhaps cut it back to, you know, 35 events and let the rest of the world have it for 15 weeks a year. Or or have it be, you know, the, the best players. There's 20 spots that you, you got to qualify and make it more global. I think, you know, who knows what's going to happen with, with the European Tour and the PGA Tour with this alliance, you know, that they have yeah, now. Yeah. But, like... Maybe that's maybe maybe all of a sudden the Scottish and the Irish Open are are more attended by PGA Tour players, you know. Maybe, and I don't know how they do it. Maybe it's all important FedEx Cup points or whatever the hell <laughs> that what, what that means. But uh, but the you know if I think that scarcity, it's it's really you know the most popular sport in America is football, and it's not even close. You know what the mm. most the scarcest sport in America is the least amount of games football football. I assume. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think it's almost directly correlated like the sports popularity to the, the amount it plays, you know? And if you, if with golf playing say 50 tournaments or the PGA tour playing 50 tournaments, four days a tournament, they effectively have 200 games, you know? Yeah. Yeah. More games than professional baseball. That's, that's wild. Yeah. Yeah. One just rolls into another. I mean, you could probably forsake the John Deere Classic for the Scottish Open and make the Scottish Open a PGA Tour event. Mm-hmm. That would be certainly much more interesting. Yeah. It's, you, know, it, you know, and this is not a, a shot at the John Deere Classic. They they run a great event there. But I think the other thing, too, is, like, why not have it rotate? Like, you know, I'm in Chicago. We don't have an event this year. You know, we didn't have an event last year, obviously. And, you know, we don't have a regular event. We're the, the third biggest, probably second biggest golf market in the in the country. 
you know, we don't have a regular event, but like if one of these 20 events, say it's 20, say it's 25 events, uh, the yeah. top players, if they rotate it all around the world, it would be incredible. How can Chicago not have a PGA Tour event? Well, Boston doesn't have one. Chicago doesn't have one. Uh, Philadelphia doesn't have one. Washington, D.C. doesn't have one. It's it's absolute madness. That's amazing. Well, yeah. Well, having said that, there is no German Open anymore, which is pretty incredible. But um, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, well, yeah, no. Well, going back to the PGA, I mean, I mean it's kind of a, you know, you, you, you almost know it's never going to happen. But once every four years, every Olympic year, the PGA ought to go outside of the United States. Now, that should become the world major. And I guarantee you in 50 years' time, it would go from being the unloved fourth major, despite the fact it's got the best field of all the majors. Mm-hmm. It would go from being the unloved fourth major, certainly outside of America. I mean, people care about the PGA in Australia, but nowhere near as much as they care about the British Open, the US Open or the Masters. It, you know, if, if you took it outside and you played in Japan, you played in Royal Melbourne, you played in, on, you played in Paris, it would, it would, in 50 years' time, I guarantee you, it would be the most loved major. It'll be, it'll be massive. That's the thing. Yeah, none of them rotate outside of their country, which would be, you know, you essentially be able to make it almost Olympic, Olympics it, make it more feel yeah. like the golf's Olympic. Well, I got good news for you. There's an there's an open PGA Championship date in 2030. Maybe that could be the first one. Oh, you know, it, it's. <laughs> I mean, even if they didn't do it, it would be interesting if they just opened their mind to the possibility of doing it. Yeah, just open. Like just like 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 just, like just not no. The, you know, the the US PGA is in America, and that's it. Well, it's like what what about once every eight years, even just just take it outside, take it out. Again, if, if you were starting again, you would never play three of the four majors in the United States. You would do what they do in tennis. Yeah. And, and it's about the only thing tennis does better than golf is they play four majors in four completely distinct and different cities. And they've each got their own personality and they're, such, and they're all such great events. That's, you know, just an interesting parallel on top of the, your tennis comparison. Uh, just the state of tennis today and golf today is that it's ironic that tennis is is the sport where you know the stars make all the money. Number eighty on the on the tennis money list can barely pay his bills, you know. And then you look at golf and and you know number one twenty five on the FedEx Cup's making a hundred you know one point two million dollars, and yeah. uh, you know each sport tennis is now looking at golf as a as a more manageable model for their pay and golf is looking at tennis the stars of golf are looking at tennis saying we need to get paid for it's well you know if the stars at golf want to talk to paul mcnamee who's, who's a great tennis mind who, who was a you know it was a tournament director of the Australian open for 15 years wimbledon doubles champion 25 in the world in singles you know if if if, that, that, if they want to talk to someone about a broken model in sport then talk to Paul about tennis. I mean, he just is in, de- in despair at the fact that the 120th player in tennis can't make a living. Yeah. Anyway, I, I think three or four weeks ago, there was one tournament, say it was in Monte Carlo, or the Monte Carlo. It's a 64 draw, I think. It's the only tennis tournament in the world. He looks at golf and says, they're playing in Europe, they're playing in Japan, they're playing in America. 
There are, there are a thousand guys making a living out of golf. And there are, you know, if you get in the grandstands, it's 100 grand to lose first round. So you're guaranteed 400,000 for the year. But if you're not in those, bad luck. So he coached Sue Wei Shea, who is a Taiwanese woman player who made the quarterfinal in the Australian Open, number one in doubles. She was qualifying for a singles tournament a month ago. So how can she be qualifying? She, she made the last eight in the Australian Open. She's qualifying? She, she's qualifying. I mean, tennis is such a broken model. It's a horrendous model if you're a player. But for Federer and Nadal, it's brilliant. Yeah. Djokovic, I think, is, you know, Djokovic is the good guy who's trying to break it up and kind of, you know, but from my reading of it, he's the one in there who's trying to at least get the players who aren't the absolute elite being paid a living wage. So golf would be well advised not to follow the tennis model. I, well, that's the thing is if, if you if you get all the way over to tennis, like think about how many careers get cut short of of players who might end up being great because they can't they can't you know you might be the hundredth best player in the world at, you know like the mini tour player just to say yeah you know what I need to do something else for a living and call yeah. it quits and that that person might then two years later be a better tennis player than they were before you know yeah and you can bet that. Yeah, you can bet the tournament best tennis player in the world is a pretty good player. Mm-hmm. Sure, he looks pretty good to me. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you know, as we both know, the tournament best golf in the world. Sure, he's not the best player in the world, but you go watch him hit balls in the range; he's pretty darn good. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I yeah. mean, you watch any of the top five hundred players hit balls on the range; they yeah. all look pretty good. Phil, yeah. the thing is, Phil probably looks about the worst if you watch him hit balls <laughs> on the range. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, well. That was the that was the amazing thing. His rage session before that final round was horrendous. I mean, it was all over the place. I was I was talking with my buddy who's a uh, who's who's the he's a he was the teaching pro who made the made the cut, and uh, and he goes, I can't believe this. I mean, he's hitting it all over the map. He was he was just beside himself about how bad Phil's range session was. He was like, I had I have I had a better range session. Than Phil. Phil had a club break. He's he's got Tip Mickelson's running back. His coach was giving him instruction, and then he goes out and plays like pretty damn good round. Sometimes that's a good thing, though. I, I always thought the worst range session you could have was the one where you flushed every shot, and sometimes the best ones are when you couldn't hit it at all. Yeah, yeah. Which, which does which makes no sense at all. But you know, it was always a bad sign if you were flushing it on every shot. In fact. In fact, you get to the point where let me just hit a few bad ones here because this is not good. Yeah. This is not going to turn out well. One one of my best uh, days on the course. I was I I meddled in this mid am thing, um, and uh, I was I was really hungover and uh, and I was just I was batting it around all over the place on the range. And I just I made two good swings at the end of the range session, and then I I didn't miss a shot all day. It was it was just. But like the rage session in the middle of it, I was thinking about not even going and playing. Now for a quick word from our other sponsor, Bdratty. Longtime supporter of the podcast and the website, Bdratty is another great option for Father's Day. You know, it's right around the corner and they uh, they want to have you covered. So they have all kinds of sorts of great gear. Uh, obviously, they've got the Liam Polo, the Peruvian Pima cotton that we've talked a lot about a lot on this podcast. Softest cotton shirt in the game. You know, 
awesome shirt that can you can transition right from the golf course to almost any setting in you know will be probably one of your most favorite golf shirt from the day you get it you know with it being middle of summer obviously you could get a little perspiration out on the golf course and in the last two years they've been developing and developed their sport line i highly recommend this stuff when it's you know 90 degrees this is my go-to the bdratty sports they are available on the website they have uh you know shirts hoodies all sorts of different stuff in the sport line you know with summer here get some new sports shirts you know get some shirts for when it's 95 be comfortable they're kind of like an air conditioner out there um so if you use the promo code tfe dad that's tfe dad at bdraddy.com you'll get 30 percent off your entire order that's a lot of money you know 30 percent off is pretty good that's that's a discount we can't even give at the fried egg you know 30 percent off would make us lose money on gear so use TFE dad for 30% off at, at bdraddy.com and stock up on some great bdraddy sport gear or whatever, you know, fits your fancy. They got tons of great gear on that site. So bdraddy.com and now back to Mike Clayton. What are you working on? You got uh, anything exciting going on from the architecture side of things? Uh, yeah, Mike DeVries is down in September, October. We start on Matt Goggins' course at Seven Mile Beach in Hobart. Mm-hmm. So I was playing with Matt about 25 years ago. He just turned pro. He said, there's an amazing bit of land in Hobart. I, I just started in, in the golf course design business. He said, there's an amazing piece of land in Hobart. I've been playing on it since I was a kid. I'm going to build a golf course on it one day. Yeah, yeah, okay, fine. So... He got us down to look at it about 10 years ago. It's the most incredible site. Uh, yeah, uh, and I'm sure golf architects say this all the time, but it's Pine Valley in the sand dunes on the ocean. It's incredible. So after 10 years, he's finally gotten that going. So we start there in September. So that's a kind of really cool job. So DeVries is he's flying down with his wife to live in Hobart for a year, and we're going to build that. So that's kind of the... How does the site compare with Barboogle since you, you were part of that? I think it's, you know, as much as great as Barboogle was, I think it's better because it's got trees on it, which they're clearing now. But, you know, we're going to leave a bunch of trees on it. Um, it. It's bigger, wider, and broader. So the site of Barboogle was, it was on that really narrow strip. That, you know, the, the definition of a lynx between the ocean and the farmland. And the farmland at Bamboogle was the worst bit of land you've ever seen for building golf. It's flat mud where Richard Sattler grazes cows on. But that little narrow strip of sand dunes was what we had. And it was perfect for golf, but it was narrow and long, whereas there's no amount of – there's any amount of space at Seven Mile Beach. So you can go in any direction. You can break up the directions of the holes. There's no limit on the space. In, In fact, it's big enough to build four golf courses on it. Wow. So it's much different from Bamboogle and better from the sense that there's just more space and you're not constricted. And it was no impediment to building the greatest course in the world at St Andrews, that it was on a narrow strip of land that went up and down. But I think it's arguably better if you've got more space and more, more land to spread out. Yeah, it makes the routing process a little tougher. You know? Well, it does because you know, you know, we kind of found the clubhouse site really early on. There was one really obvious place to put it. And 
you can go in any direction and find a great hole. And then once you've found that one great hole, you can just step across five yards and go in any direction and find another great hole. So we'll never know if we've got the best routing. You know, it, it would be impossible to know if, if you ever had the best routing. In fact, we've had so many routings there over the years. But I think we've got a pretty good one. How, how do you go about that? Do you, do you look for the best long holes knowing that the short, the par threes are the easiest ones to find? Yeah, you do. Because, yeah, I mean, because the par three, you, you can find a great par three anywhere. Um, you know, and, and par threes necklace. can get you out of tough spots too. Yeah, out, out of little tricky corners. That's exactly right. So I think it was Nicholas who said on a good bit of land, all you see is par fives and a bad bit of land, all you see is par threes. So this is a little mix of both. There are some really cool par threes. But, but there are lots of long runs of holes that we, where I don't think there's a par four on the, on the course, apart from the ones that head down towards the beach, where you, that you couldn't stretch out into making a par five. Mm-hmm. So it's just a, it's a bit like, imagine sandhills with trees. You've played sandhills, I assume? Yeah, oh yeah. That's yeah. You know, that's, so you got me excited. I, I might have to just move to move to Australia. Yeah. That's a, yeah. Are they accepting uh, new citizens? <laughs> well, not right. Well, <laughs> Australia is not accepting anyone at the moment. In fact, there are forty thousand Australians are outside Australia who can't even get back home. So um, yeah, but once this pandemic's over, hopefully, um, it's well. It's, the great thing for it'll be easier to get to than like to, uh, than uh, Farm Bugle too, right? Because it's near Hobart, right? What what's five minutes from Hobart Airport? Oh my god! So it's so it's incredibly easy to get to. So so it's it's hard to imagine when you say it's five minutes from an airport, people just assume well the land possibly can't be any good because it's obviously dead flat. And, I mean, it's literally five minutes from the airport. It's a spit of land going out into the water. Covered in sand dunes, it's, it's it's amazing, man. So that's kind of my next year's well project for the next year, really, which is okay. really exciting. We'll get you out of the beach house. <laughs> well, I will get us out of the beach house. But um, yeah, the, the amazing thing about Hobart was um, the best course in Hobart was probably the 80th best course in Australia, Royal Hobart. Mm-hmm. And then Bamboogle got built, then Lost Farm, then Cape Wickham. And once Seven Mile Beach gets done, you know, if we don't screw it up, they'll arguably have four of the best six courses in Australia, in Tasmania, which is pretty amazing. So, it's, you know, it's become a huge tourist pool for the island. You know, it's, I mean, it looks like Tas- Tasmania and Hobart. Hobart looks like a beautiful city too. Yeah, it is. It's right in the water. It, it's not I – mean, we complain about the weather, but – you know, someone in Hobart complaining about the weather to someone who lives in Chicago, they, they, they would just laugh at us. What What do they complain yeah. about? I... Yeah, yeah. I mean, what, I'm when just it's curious. Cold, what, what, what's the weather like? Oh, they would complain about 55 or 60 degrees. Oh, God. You know, my dream is to live somewhere where when I put a jacket on, I'm warm. Like one yeah. jacket. And prob- probably there's... No day in Hobart when you can't play golf. Ah. There'd be there'd be ten or fifteen days where it wouldn't be much fun. It'd be windy and cold, but you can play golf every day. So, you know, so so people, and, and Melbourne weather's probably better than Hobart. 
But people in, people in, from Queensland, which is our Florida, way to the north, which is your south, go nuts about Melbourne's weather. I mean, there's no better climate for golf in the world than Melbourne. It's an amazing climate for golf. Because, you, I mean, we, you know, there's almost literally never a day when you can't play golf in Melbourne. Yeah, like in the winter, do the trees, like I only hear of people going to Australia in the winter or in, in our winter, your summer. Like, is it, does the court, do the courses actually play better? Cause like, does, would the Kikuya die out and would it be less, less sticky a lot of places? Well, well there's Kikuya in Sydney. There's no Kikuya in Melbourne. So, so, so we have Bermuda fairways all year round now. Uh, the, the, the ball runs further in the winter. The fairways go dormant, but the courses play pretty much well, the same. I mean, like the courses in Pinehurst play way better in the winter than they play in the summer because the, the Bermuda goes dormant at the places that don't overseed. Yeah, so they don't, it doesn't play better, but it doesn't play any worse. And, it, you know, it doesn't, the courses look better in summer because they're greener and, and, the, and the dormant is a bit dank. I mean, I love brown, but, but it's, it's a danky kind of brown rather than a burned off. Hoy Lake Brown, okay, which is which is really cool, but um, I mean Hobart's perfect because it's cold enough to grow fescue, so all the fairways in Hobart in, in Tasmania are fescue. All all, all the new course fairways, Bamboogle, really? Wickham, so Seven Mile Beach, you're going to do fescue down there too. Yeah, yeah. So fescue is the, I mean, by far the best grass to play golf on. So yeah. so it's, I mean, Bamboogle's the best conditioned course in Australia year round because it's so great to play there in the winter. Got to got to get down there. Maybe twenty twenty two. It's got. We got to do. I, I'm at the point where it needs to be a month. So you know that's just the reality of the situation. Yeah, which which is going to be January February. So there, there's a potential to have two really cool events in Melbourne in January and February. But then you follow on with the Vic Open, which is a mixed LPGA European oh, Tour yeah. event. Then go to the. And, and then go to the Women's Open in Adelaide. So in a couple of years' time, it'll be easier to do a month down here. Yeah. All right, Mike, it's always great t- chatting. Um, we'll talk soon. And uh, and looking forward to uh, Seven Mile Beach. Thanks, mate. Great fun. See you later. All right, Will and Garrett. This is a rare three-person in-person pod this is unprecedented actually first time ever this has never happened before well the friday crew is rarely in the same place at the same time anyway yeah 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 especially in the last year you know hired will we live in the same city i didn't see him for six months um anyways lots going on in the golf world uh we were here garrett you were, you were flying you were in the air while the u.s women's open was going on uh Wanted to chit chat about what happened. Obviously, it was a historic U.S. Open being at the Olympic Club for the first time in the history of uh, the U.S. Women's Open, a course that's hosted ten other USGA championships. And then uh, with the the Lexi Thompson collapse there down the final nine, uh, Yuka Sasso became the youngest tying MB Park, the youngest. U.S. Women's Open champ ever at 19 years old. And some days that was a great Justin Ray stat down to the day tied the youngest U.S. Open champ. Um, 
pretty crazy. Then you could get into technicalities about time of birth as well as, you know, hour that they want. Have we have we looked into this? I don't know if anybody has. <laughs> I I uh, we'll leave that to Justin. All right, all right, Justin. Yeah. It's definitely get on not it. in my wheelhouse. <laughs> so what uh will what what did you think about uh, about the tournament what were your takeaways of from the tournament two things the first is the slow drip of mistakes lexi made down the stretch just each one of them you kind of felt it coming but it was still really hard to watch second i just- mean it was like an unraveling like that's something that you just i think like anybody that's played tournament golf and even like anybody, that's <laughs> anybody who's really played, played golf, played and yeah. like in a competitive setting, fuel. club champion. This is yeah. having caddied in so many club championships in my life. Like I've seen that movie so many times, where things are seemingly like in the player's mind, they're going in fast forward, but you as a viewer are watching them in slow motion. Yep, and you could see her brain like really start moving quickly, but she was trying to laugh it off. But each time she stepped up in a pivotal moment where she could either gain momentum or at least avoid losing two shots in, in one case or at least making bogey, it was like, no, like you are not going to be able to execute this. And for a world-class player that she is, it was really hard to watch. Yeah, it just seemed like, obviously, the prodigious distance is is the real thing that makes her game why why she's a top 10 player is how well she drives the golf ball how far she hits it it in a way it almost seemed like when the pressure gets the most you know when you feel the most pressure all of your weaknesses are the things that become very apparent and it like she's obviously a world-class player we're talking about one of the you know a player that's been in the top 10 of the world rankings for nearly a decade it it really seemed like the things that have haunted her over a career, namely her putter, were very exposed down the stretch there. there. Yeah, there's I don't think anyone would classify Lexi as a grinder necessarily. She's a very good player. But when things start moving quickly and you need to really score and continue the momentum that just seems like where she has struggled in the past and that was exposed again this week. Yeah. And I think an underrated part of the meltdown was that she, it really started with missing a bunch of fairways. Like she was just battling back from the rough a lot down the stretch and everybody points to that chip, the flub chip at 11 as the, as the moment when things really started to go wrong. And I think that's right. You know, things really did go wrong after that. And that was a very bad shot, but that was precipitated by her missing the fairway and this just being able to hack up to the point that she chipped from. Um, and she kept doing that. Her bad holes on the back nine, a lot of them were missing the fairway, getting a kind of crappy lie and just being able to do a little bit. And that put a lot of pressure on her short game and her putting. And obviously when, you know, when you applied that pressure to her short game and putting, she just wasn't making those 10 footers or getting it really close from off the green. And I think that's the thing you look at the leaderboard and Lexi was hitting she was hitting the driver so spectacularly, spectacularly well through um, 
through really 63 holes of the tournament and that back nine is where it unraveled. But then you look across the leaderboard at the other players in contention and they were, they were hitting tons of fairways. Uh, NASA, uh, Shen Shen were hitting tons of fairways and Yuka Sasa wasn't, but she was arguably had the best short game week of any player in the field. And if you're not going to, and that was the whole thing with, with Olympic is you better hit fairways. Right. Uh, you have to hit fairways. And we saw that kind of play out. You have to hit fairways. And if you don't hit fairways, you have to have a supremely great week around the greens. And mm-hmm. I think Lexi and, and Yuka Sasso were two players that could afford to miss more fairways because of their length and strength, like we've seen in the men's game with, with Brooks and Bryson. But I don't think it's at the level yet of the men's game where they can just over, completely overpower a course. Like that rough still has a tremendous impact at, at, in the women's game. Right. And like when they're missing fairways, I mean, say they have 160 yards, when Bryson is able to muscle some sort of wedge that far, it's way different when you're hitting seven or eight iron. When Alexi has an incredible amount of clubhead speed, but just. The amount there's the additional loft that Bryson is able to use through there just makes that much bigger of a difference. Yeah. Will, did you have a second thing? Yeah. The second thing on a more positive note was just the true excitement from everyone in the field to go to Olympic Club. Um, well, I'm sure you guys have your takes on the golf course and we can get to those, but I think a good point made by someone uh, in our DMs this week was asking if they can be in on a host venue as a place, but not necessarily in on it as a golf course. And for the women's game to go somewhere like Olympic Club, I think for the players, for the fans, for some of the media that strictly follows women's golf, I think that was an exciting opportunity for them. And the USGA is doing a lot better job of that moving forward. Um, But like looking back on Pinehurst in 2014, there was a lot of excitement around that week. And I think we kind of saw the same thing this week. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the place versus golf course idea will come up again when we go to Torrey Pines. Yes. It's like, that's a cool place. Has a lot of history. You know, there's obviously a lot of great things about it. The golf course isn't very good, but with Olympic club, at, at least what you have is some interesting stuff going on with the golf course and uh and a, a real priority put on ball striking by the slope of the property um and you know a lot of what we're talking about so far feeds into what my main takeaway is and and that's that the US Women's Open is now the real US Open like when John Bodenhammer talks about what the US Open is supposed to be what it represents you know this the 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 challenging test that is supposed to be the full examination the full examination of a player's game i don't think that they can really do that anymore with the modern men's game right that they there different things have to be done to the golf course in order for the scores to be um higher and uh you know and and kind of goofy things happen when you get to that edge but with the women's game right now, and I'm not sure if this is always going to be the case, right? We had a 14-year-old this week who is hitting the ball 300, so like, I, think I don't know. I think that's, I think um, that's But right now with the women's, women's game, this is a real U.S. Open. What the U.S. Open is supposed to be, that's what we saw this week. Now, whether you like that or not, that's up to you, but this was a real U.S. Open. I, you know, I think that's the thing is I think that there 
I think what I would say is that the USGA's philosophy on on setup and how they look at a golf course and think about testing a player, I think their philosophy works tremendously for the women's game. And it does no longer, the men's game has evolved to the point where they need to present different problems for the best players. Yes. And I don't know if, if the USGA is, is nimble or enough at this point to even know that they no longer, they, they've just made it a one dimensional who hits it the furthest test, which I would wager, uh, you know, if I was a wagering man, a fair sum of money is what's going to unfold at Torrey Pines. It's the same thing that unfolded at Wingfoot. And it's the same thing that's unfolded at almost every U.S. Open, men's Open for the last eight years. While, you know, at uh, it was amazing at, at the U.S. Women's Open, we had such a wide variety of players. And that we had Nasa, who's more of a control player, a shorter hitter, you know, playing, you know, in a playoff with, with Yuka Sasso, who's one of the longest hitters. We had Lexi, a, a bomber. We had Shen Shen Feng. Who is who's a very much a control player who you know through twelve holes it hit every every fairway and every green in regulation you know um, that's hit wild. every single fairway until she hit she hit uh, thirteen of fourteen fairways two rounds at Olympic Club like I couldn't even fathom doing that and where we're still at a level where in the women's game where um, you know precision players can tangle with power players on a narrow long narrow and long rough golf course mm -hmm. absolutely and going back to i mean another thing that the usga prides themselves on is that everyone has a chance mm -hmm. and that i mean we saw megagane and maya stark both finish top 20 they both were in the mix quote unquote on sunday um like yes, women's game. The women's game. You start earlier in your professional career, but just seeing two amateurs in con quote unquote contention, like it, you can really qualify for this a as an amateur and have a legitimate chance if you have the week of your life. Yeah, Maya Stark d didn't get enough coverage. This, I mean, obviously, uh, Megagane was the was the big amateur story, but Maya Stark uh, has been on a tear. This yeah. summer, she's been showing up in a lot of different places. Uh, yeah, she's a NCAAs, hell of a player. Uh, the uh, the, uh, the Anwa, yeah, yeah, yeah. A really, really great player. I think one of the things was that she, you know, Mega Ghana was in the final group, and uh, versus Maya Stark, who's who started the day yeah. eight shots back, and was and was tied for the lead the first two days, right. Um, yeah, I mean, an incredible story. Um, Andy, did you have any particular takeaways that are different from what we've uh, been talking about so far? I think I think I've just I was I think we've seen some of the the golf world shift, and I think that's been exciting. I think like No Laying Up's done like a wonderful job covering the women's game and and generating more interest, and I think just as we look forward i think you know the women's games on like a really great trajectory up and i think there's more inter interest than ever and i think where 
you know, with the USGA really prioritizing venues and, and getting the women playing the best venues, uh, you know, Pebble Beach in two years is going to be unbelievable for the women's game. Um, but I think this needs to have a trickle down effect at, at the LPGA level and really pushing, I think, you know, being out there on site on the ground, you know, I think one of the biggest takeaways I had was just how, how, refreshing the players were how open and willing they were to talk how engaging they were with fans during the week of the tournament you know we saw lexi signing autographs after she just had one of the you know probably worst meltdowns in in golf history on the on the golf course like you know it's just to me such a more you know it's a product that you're really it it makes me excited about covering more and more in the future and I think just in general, I think it should be way more popular than it is. And I'm happy to see like it. I thought I felt like it really owned Sunday on, you know, modern social media outlet. Like I think on Twitter, it really was the dominant tournament, which was neat to see up against, you know, the Memorial who had two top 15 players in a playoff and all and all sorts of distracting stuff going on at the more more it was almost like it was engineered to try to divert attention back to the pga tour um with the bryson and brooks stuff on friday and um and obviously that john rom having to withdraw was a big story and you know that that wasn't that wasn't a joke but um i, I mean yeah, it was uh, it, it was great nonetheless. To even though these big stories were unfolding on the PGA Tour, the interest in the U.S. Women's Open was sustained uh, throughout the weekend, and I think the the venue has a lot to do with that. I think people were excited to see um, the top women in the world play Olympic Club, and obviously, as you mentioned the players were super excited to go there. You know, for this podcast that I did for Friday Stories, I talked to, you know, Julie Inkster and Lucy Lee. Lucy Lee ended up having a, having a pretty good week at Olympic Club. She got through the qualifier that I was covering. And both of them answered the question about, you know, what, what was important to you about this U.S. Women's Open in exactly the same way. They said, Olympic Club. I have had this circled on my schedule for years. I've been looking forward to this tournament going to this venue for years. And this was really, really important to me and to women's golf. They were both on that theme. Lucy Lee being 18 years old, right? Uh, And still having that perspective. And obviously Julie Inkster being at the end of her career. And she was like, I got to try to qualify for this. This is a big deal. And so I think that was a huge part of it for sure. And you and Andy both have talked about this in the past, but prioritizing venues not only in major championships but across the lpga tour could like really boom interest i mean they're doing a lot better job i mean infusing lake merced and inverness club last year uh they went to shadow creek just recently just getting places where the casual golf fan would be interested in seeing and even pga tour fans getting the both players and media fans all excited about going to places I think only helps everyone uh, increase their interest in each event. One other thing that I, uh, I meant to talk about at the top, I think Yuka Sasso could be a, a transformational player for the uh, women's game and LPGA tour. I think obviously youngest women's open winner, you know, tying at MB park, who's won seven majors, I believe. Um, 
And I think with Sasso, the thing that is intoxicating is when you when you see her swing the club, it looks different and but in a familiar way where, you know, I think most golf fans would say short of Tiger, the person they most want to see swing a golf club is is Rory McIlroy. It's the most it's like poetic, it's beautiful, it's so rhythmic and just so effortlessly powerful and here's Yuka Sasso who famously learned, you know, to swing a golf club by watching Rory McIlroy YouTube videos and it was cool to see Rory engaging with with Yuka Sasso um you know putting it up on Instagram and Twitter about like, you know, and inter, inter, interacting but I think I was with some buddies, some college buddies that aren't big golf fans in the women's game. Women's uh, Saturday, the women's golf came on Golf Channel, and they saw the swing, and they their reaction was like, "Who's that?" You know, and I think that her her presence on that tour and potential to be you know one of the five big players could really you know shift the conversation and. and I think just open some eyes as to like how talented the rest of the tour is because she has that golf swing. That's just, you know, you can't take your eyes off it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's that, there's something about it that, I mean, uh, it's obviously catnip for the aggregators, this, this Yuka Rory. I mean, it's very charming. The way Rory has engaged has been great. and And what she has said about it has been great. Um, I think at some point we need to get beyond the Yuka Rory thing and, and talk more about who Yuka Sasso is, because I think she's a really interesting person. And Andy, you and Brendan dug into her backstory quite a bit for the shotgun start. And I thought that that, you know, that that should get uh, as much attention as the as the Rory similarities. But when you see her release, the way she turns through the ball and releases the club to me, it is very similar to, to, to Rory. You know, it, it really has that. The thing that's uh, thrilling about Rory's swing is the way I feel he, he releases the club, um, how it's so free, right? Yeah. And she does the same thing. And I think that golf swing can be, it's like, you know, when you, when you watch a swing, it makes you want to know more about that person, when, especially when you sw- see a swing like that. I don't know. I've never, like... It's hard to really put to words what it is, but when you see certain golf swings, it makes you just like you want more. And I think that she has the opportunity to do that, not only for her own, like, you know, own fans, but also for women's golf. Mm-hmm. And adding to that, I mean, I think every, everyone deserves a chance to, or not deserves, everyone should just watch and like see the similarities between the swings. But I think. The other thing she might have learned from Rory is just like the confidence and swagger that she carries on the golf course is intoxicating. I mean, even when she was making mistakes, she still seemed like she was in control of her emotions out there. And that's something that Rory does very well when he's kind of bouncing around the golf course. And she did that on the back nine when she felt Lexi coming down on her. She started making birdies on 16, 17. She knew that that wasn't her opportunity. It's funny. I, you know, I think part of it is the glasses, but I, I felt like there was like a Hideki Matsuyama, like deadpan, like, you know, um, demeanor where you, you could look at her and you wouldn't know if things were unraveling or if things were going really well. Like that's kind of just the, the, the feel I had for her was like, you know, this kind of like 
to hang in there at 19 after starting double or six six yeah incredible like i mean she played flawless golf you know the last 12 or so holes um and especially down the stretch she was so good i i just uh I don't. I don't think many nineteen-year-olds can would hang in there after that. It, it that she must have felt so awful going to the third hole, right? And then she made double there too. I think. Yeah. Right? So yeah. Yeah. Double double. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, Both I mean double it, double. One of the most amazing final round recoveries I can remember for mm-hmm. sure. And I, I don't know. So I mean, I, I'd I'd like to know more about Yuka Sasso. I mean, I learned a lot, as as I mentioned, from the segment that uh, Andy and Brendan did on her um, and, and get a sense for her personality. But I, I thought that one of the key facts of her biography is that she was born in the Philippines, obviously, right? Had a, had a, a Filipina mother and a Japanese father. And when she was about four years old, five years old, the family moved to Japan. Yeah. And what Sasso, I believe, has talked about is that she felt lonely, as a kid would, you know, moving to a new country and felt that she wasn't really able to make friends that well, didn't speak the language that well. And that's when her interest in golf really started to take off. And the way she talks about her interest in golf, watching YouTube videos is, to me the way that someone who is sort of introverted and internal someone who is is you know comfortable pursuing interests on their own alone would engage with the game so to me that the interesting thing that uh, about her looking at Rory videos isn't the Rory thing isn't the uncanny emulation of that swing it's the fact that in her free time She's looking up YouTube videos and going down the rabbit hole and trying to learn things. Honestly, not all golfers are like that, right? A a lot of golfers learn the game more socially from teachers or from peers out on the golf course. Here's Yuka at home, right? A little bit lonely in in a new country uh, looking up YouTube videos. Um, And I I think that that to me gives her a personality that I personally can connect with and that makes sense given what we saw out on the course at Olympic. I think one of the things too that makes me a little sad is um last year during the US Women's Open we I I did a flashback for the shotgun start on say repack uh, first win uh or first US Women's Open win and you know it kind of tied to the to what happened in South Korea with women's golf after that it was just like this explosion of interest and in, in all the talent we see today is really the say re era from there. And and there was just one of the things that was there was like these great sports illustrated archive uh, articles, these profiles on Pac, like in, in uh, one of the things that stinks at this point with, with golf in general is that we're missing those. And, yeah, and I mean, are. I run a golf media outlet, but there's just like economically feasible. It's not feasible <laughs> to send, a writer to can know, I go the to the Philippines, Philippines to to write a Yukasasso article, <laughs> um, right? You know, but like that's the thing I think that's missing a little bit, especially from the women's game, is the storytelling around these players and their backgrounds, and and you know maybe maybe the future's in audio, maybe, but but the you know being able to read, I think it was Jaime Diaz write about Seri 
and you know everything she's done for the game and in south korea and what it's like like i don't think we're gonna know or, or really hear a ton about what it's gonna do for the game in the philippines when you could go back there or you know what you know how inspirational it's gonna be but i would imagine that we're gonna see a boom like this is huge like they yeah. the in that spotlight that brenda did incredible research but when she won the i can't remember like the asian junior games it was like a massive deal in the country she became a celebrity it in, was her and uh, uh long hitter yeah uh, uh bianca, bianca uh yeah. uh uh-huh. yeah i think is how you pronounce her name <laughs> so that's pretty good uh but she's uh yeah yeah right who who was making headlines earlier this year because uh she's out on tour and, and just hitting it past leads, everybody yeah, i think she might be leading driving distance hitting, hitting it past lexi yeah yeah um, yeah, I mean, I, I, absolutely, there is a hole now because we don't have a Jaime Diaz going to the Philippines and figuring out what it means that Yuka Sasso just won there. Um, you don't have anything anywhere doing yeah, that, which, yeah. you know, we're just going to reheat. Are we going to reheat the Rory sh- stuff uh, over and over? The next time Yuka Sasso does something amazing, are we going to get more Rory stuff? Because, I mean, I, I get it, I get why that's interesting. But um, it would just be too bad if we were that lazy, um, to, you know, about finding more interesting stuff to say. Yeah, I mean, the only thing, well, not the only thing, but some of the, uh, the interesting things that come out of this was similar to when Hideki won and some of the Japanese newspapers were depicting his every golf shot that he put on the front page. It's the uh, six top uh, Filipino um, newspapers all had her on the front page after her win. Oh yeah, and that's just so cool and something that wouldn't. I mean, there might be like a small blurb on like the front of the New York Times when someone wins the Masters, but it's not the story of the day. Um, and I think that's something that everyone is starting to realize with as this incredible Asian crop of players continues to. Well, and starts to dominate the women's game, and already uh, dominating. Yeah, yeah, dominates the women's game. I mean, one more up. major goes by, and an American yeah. player does not win. Yeah, and I mean, we saw it with Hideki, and we saw it with Yuka. Like, it's a huge deal for them, and LPGA numbers are great. That's why they continue to host this Asian swing. And I feel, it, I feel a little bit for the country of Japan because how cool it would have been to have Hideki win. You know, the Masters, arguably the biggest event in men's golf, and then Nasahataoka win the biggest event in women's golf, the U.S. Women's Open, right in leading into the Olympics would have been pretty insane. <laughs> to, to what extent does or can Japan claim uh, a piece of Yuka Sasso? That's true. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's clearly where she started learning the game. Uh, and so I think the enthusiasm for golf in Japan has has something to do with uh, her ability in the game and it has to right i think you might have to ask a texan that you know where are they texan or american yeah you know, we, we need to ask can hideki win is yeah. what we need to do <laughs> he's gone <laughs> but, though yeah can hideki win is gone he's, he's just taking Twitter. a break yeah no way this is news to me <laughs> yeah he said this he said, he said his goodbyes this is very unfortunate we should also okay. mention that uh, Subasa Kajitani also won the Anwa. So, I mean, it really was, yeah, we were very right. close to three huge golf wins for yeah. Japan. Yeah. Oh, I mean, four kind of with Yuka. But um, that's, I, you know, and this, one of the things that I love also about women's golf is how big of a deal the Olympics is. Um, they haven't reached the level of, um, you know, the monetary level of the men's game that 
you know, has allowed the Olympics, the arguably the greatest athletic achievement in, in sports being an Olympian, um, you know, become irrelevant and, uh, you know, in a busy it, schedule. Yeah. A busy schedule and, a, a contrived FedEx cup playoffs being prioritized with the women's game. The Olympics is one of the four or five biggest events of, of a year. I, th- I would argue that it, you know, next to the U S women's open might be the biggest event of the year because these women know being an Olympic gold medalist would open them, open them into a whole new stratosphere of endorsements. So, you know, there is a huge monetary reward for, for them. And, you know, MB park, Mike one on this podcast that talked about like the ratings MB park gain, it garnered in, I think tiger when he won the masters was an eight and uh, an eight rating and MB park winning the uh, Olympics in South Korea was a 24 rating, which is absolutely insane. But you know, this, all these, all the best women will be at the Olympics, which I think is a really neat thing. And obviously the Olympics is kind of a dicey situation at this point with COVID and, and, uh, but it sounds like golf, you know, and the Olympics are a go and, 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 it, that'll be an amazing event uh, later this year to watch. Yeah, yeah. What well, you know? What would be a great story is Nasa Haroka winning, uh, or Shibuna, the other, or, yeah, winning in Japan. Yeah, but uh, you know, Nasa Haroka, real quick. We should uh, twenty-two years old, absolute baller, five top tens in majors since uh, twenty eighteen. She's she's been in the mix a lot. I think she's just. I think she's one of those great iron players. Who's gonna Who's gonna be there in big tournaments? Who's gonna play hard courses well? That's the thing I noticed too. Is like Megan Kang, mm-hmm. top top five last year at the U.S. Women's Open and top five this year. And you know, you look at her results other places, and it, you just don't make sense. And then you watch Megan Kang play at Olympic. It was an absolute stripe show. I yes. mean, she was unbelievable. I could not believe the shots that I was watching. Like. You know, every single time it just seemed she was just knocking down flag after flag with mid and long irons. It's like, oh, like she's quite good. And maybe the and I think this is the detriment of the golf course selection by the LPGA. You know, from what I gather, it's it's very, very heavily dictated more so than the PGA Tour based on sponsors. If the sponsor says we want to we want to sponsor this, this is where we're hosting it. And I think, you know, it. It's hard because, you know, the the sponsor interest isn't the same as the PGA Tour, but like I think the tour needs to be like this is where we want to host it. Yeah. Will you know, can we can we agree on this? You know? and, and there's even some media pressure to make the courses easier. I mean, I I thought that this this week illustrated so many of the great skills of the players that were in contention. Absolutely. It, it showed them in the best light possible. Was anybody saying, Oh, uh, Yuka Sasso is not a very good golfer because she only shot four under at Olympic club. No, you, they saw Yuka Sasso pulling off incredibly difficult shots under incredibly difficult circumstances. And that's the thing is like that that short game skill. She would have gotten it up and down all over the place anywhere last week. But everybody else would have gotten it up and down significantly more often. What she was able to do was separate herself because of her skills and be extraordinary around the greens where other people's average was 
considerably less effective. Yeah. Yeah. Any Lexi takes? Should we talk about Lexi? I I mean, I I mean, uh, what what is, what does this mean at this point? Um, right. Cause this was a, this felt like a, a fork in the road, right? If, if she wins this, this is a, a, a great, you know, sort of second stage of her career. She's only 26. Right. But, um, she's been around for forever. She's qualified for the USO, uh, US women's open when she was 11. And I don't know, this just felt like a really, really devastating setback. It doesn't feel like she should only have one major. Um, I'm trying to think of like a, a comparison on the PGA Tour, but to play in 50 PGA champion or P- 50 major championships and only have one win just doesn't seem right for someone of her caliber and Dustin standing Johnson pre 2020 Masters maybe? maybe yeah I she doesn't win a lot though she doesn't win a lot on the, uh, like she's had a very long career like it's not like she wins a ton like this is not this is not somebody like DJ going out and winning four or five events a year every year like she wins. One, two events a year, like a good year's two events. Like she, she racks up high finishes, but I think this is, this is maybe like the comparisons like Adam Scott and both of them are plagued by an extremely bulky putter that just seemingly held, held them back. And, um, you know, I think that that could be the comparison is where you look at Adam Scott and it's like, how is it possible this man only won one? Yeah major championship um that's pretty good yeah then you see the two putters in, in his bag and well, you're like oh, and, oh that's and like why. <laughs> adam scott never won prolifically on the pga that's tour true. either like yeah. he won he's won a lot but he's 40 plus years old and he's been out there since he's 19 yeah like when you put it in that perspective it's like oh he's won one tournament a year for for 20 plus years yeah. um I think I would I would I would lean that way more and there's a lot of skeletons in that that closet now with with the bad finishes she had a really bad one at the tour championship a few years ago um missing I think she missed like a two footer for a win and um yeah 27 that was 2017 that was her bad 2017 two footer for the tour championship missed it and then of course that was the year at the ANA inspiration when she uh, was uh, was doing some things with her uh, ball mark and uh, got a four stroke penalty basically and and lost that. I I, I you know at a certain point those like it's that that great Patrick Harrington uh, quote from the PGA is like experience isn't all it's cracked up to be like with 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 experience you you lose innocence. Mm-hmm. And I think the the coverage like to lean on how much of how great how great of a learning experience this would be when you've been playing professional golf for as long as she has out there. Um, obviously, considering shorter LPGA careers, when you've been playing golf when you're when you're a veteran, that's not experience. That's that's a skeleton. Yeah. You know, that's scar tissue. Yeah. I mean, Will, you've, you played a lot of junior golf and, uh, and uh, through college, you you obviously saw a lot of good players coming up, you know, maybe some were better when they were juniors than they were later on. I mean, what do you, what do you think the effect is of somebody like Lexi Thompson really, uh, becoming an elite world-class player at 11 years old, becoming famous, and then I don't know. I mean, she sort of has plateaued. But do you see that a lot, where where kids who are really great, really young, just have a hard time kind of transitioning into adulthood? 
Yeah, and I think that kind of goes back to the drive that Yuka Sasso has. Like, I, I mean, we know Lexi is a very hard worker. She's in the gym all the time, and she's always at, I think, Bears Club where she's a member. And, I mean, it, she obviously cares a ton. Um, it, it is interesting to think about having gotten that good that early and what drives you to continually get better. Um, like we, like we know she obviously wants majors here. Um, but now this is the second time in three years that she's gotten either she had the lead or she was one back, I think at the 2019 U S women's open at uh, country club of Charleston. And it's like, when you're under the gun, do you have the experience to rely on that? You can kind of close this out and 50 majors in, she doesn't have that experience. Um, and as Andy said, she hasn't really won that much since she was younger. So uh, I don't know. I I think plateauing is a interesting term when you're that when you're because you, I don't think she peaked at twelve. Nobody's saying that. She but didn't. Yeah. She, she may. I mean, she won a major at nineteen, right? And an LPGA tour event at sixteen. And, and it's really hard to live up to those expectations. Yeah. Like, we see it with many players every year. So well, here and I've seen a lot of this from people far smarter than me about the golf swing, and you watch Lexi Thompson play and. You watch some of it and you're like, eh, that that doesn't look great, you know? <laughs> and I think there's certain um, merits to the discussion. She's obviously as physically gifted as anybody out there. And to a certain extent, this, you know, as you eloquently describe plateauing, when you plateau, there's a lot, like she clearly works very hard. And maybe it's at this point time to examine some of the technique because if, if you're working hard, you know, and this is like the hardest thing about golf is like, it's at that, at the highest levels, the higher the level you go, the harder and harder it gets to get better. And the harder and harder you have to work for minimal gains in the game. And maybe she has reached the maximum capabilities that her technique allows yeah well i think i think there's an interesting discussion around what what needs to improve here right there's in fact this debate is happening I mean, she right was now. afraid to chip the ball yeah she she wouldn't chip the ball after <laughs> and she the putting is clear. Yeah. yeah yeah i mean i i what it was mike clayton i guess who was just our guest on this podcast recently on uh, twitter past couple of days posted a quote from bernard darwin about how we often mistake technical problems for mental and emotional problems you know obviously with the implication that perhaps lexi's uh, issues with technique that we see in her swing are in fact the issue and not necessarily what is going on upstairs but i don't know if that completely comports with what i saw on sunday at the u.s women's open i saw mental issues plaguing her t to green not just with the golf swing but obviously with chipping and, and putting as well. And, and she's trying this new method of kind of trying to keep it light, but you can see the strain in that, I think. Well, I think that's everybody plays their best golf when they're really themselves, right? And mm -hmm. this, this idea of trying to be somebody else on a golf course, I, th I believe is a fleeting thing. Like, Absolutely. Like the what you need you're going to perform the best in anything when you're just 
uniquely yourself, right? Yeah, I mean, watching her try to laugh off bad shots, it was just uncomfortable. It's like, that's not who you are. You yeah. you need to... Like, I mean, Brooks Kepka isn't out there laughing in major championships. He is like a bulldog, like focus over everything. And he's not trying to... If he hits a squirrely one, he's not like laughing it off with his caddy. He's just deadpan i'm gonna go have the like the most impressive up and down you've ever seen it reminds me of like you know tiger so tiger in his prime obviously was like the most cold-blooded player ever and then we saw the new tiger when he came back that was really like you know laughing light-hearted you know friendly with all these players and i can't remember i think it was zach johnson i can't remember who it was said something about how on Sunday of the 2019 Masters, they were walking and they were walking by Tiger and they said something to him and got nothing. And they saw they were like, I hadn't seen that look in Tiger's eye. And, and it was like that that killer was back. Was you know, it was it Fino? I can't remember who okay. it was. Never mind. But somebody somebody talked. And, and I, it kills me. I can't remember. But somebody talked about how they saw the look in his eye and they were like, that's the different guy than that's the old guy. Um, and I think that's the thing is like he won that tournament playing that that ice cold playing partner that he won 14 other majors being. And, you know, in that in the biggest, the most pressure moments, you have to be com- confident in yourself. On the golf course. I mean, even with Phil, like two weeks ago, he was, uh, Phil is not Tiger. He's going to joke with the fans, even when he's trying to win a major at 50 years old. Like, I think those are two perfect examples of being yourself lets you be your best self. Well, that's the thing. The best champions in the world, the best champions in the history are never the ones that go through these identity crises. They never right. are the ones. <laughs> that they're, was the same Phil that we saw all along. They're be, the being subjects. sneaky. Yeah. Be, be, that's that's Phil. They're the subjects of psychology. Uh, psychologists. <laughs> right. They are not the stu- the the uh, students, right? Or the patients. Like the, they're the ones that the psychologists come to study. Yeah. I mean, maybe they go see psychologists uh, out, outside of <laughs> golf, but the golf persona, yeah, is is the one the sports psychologists yeah, that, want want to like get inside and and understand, yeah. so that they can teach their like. I think that's the thing is that there's some sort of level, and that's. I think that's the the beauty of golf and what makes it so so interesting beyond it is there's such a human element in it compared to other sports is like i think the only thing i i've thought of that really compare like pitching and baseball is particularly i mean look at closers in baseball and the psychological thing most of them are crazy how how, and how so many of them just wilt and you know you you never want your baseball team to have a bad closer like it's the worst feeling in the world but like and then there's like there's also free throws uh, and and kickers kickers Mm. in the nfl like i've lived through having cody parkey like you don't want to have a guy that like in in when the sport's not just purely a reaction based thing it adds that human element into it so much more and that's i think what makes golf so intoxicating from both a playing aspect and a viewing aspect lasting impression i just can't wait to watch more uh women's golf like i think the open championship 
is going to be an awesome, awesome thing to watch the next decade. Um, U.S. Women's Open and then the British Open, obviously. Why is it the British Women's Open and not the Women's they, Open? They got it's rid of the Women's year, Open. They got rid. Okay, yeah. they yeah. got rid of it. Yeah, it's not. It's the AIG uh, AIG Women's Open. Yeah. Okay. That, that's new yeah. this year. Though. It has yeah, changed a, a yeah. few a few times. I feel like. Yeah, yeah. I always wonder that. But right. yeah, the Women's Open. Their slate, of course, is like that's. You know, to me, anytime they play great golf courses, it, it becomes the number one uh, event to watch that week. Right. Yeah. No, uh, Woburn doesn't need to be uh, on the on the rota. <laughs> no uh, offense to champions either, but to, champions too. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's go to some of these. Real, yeah. And and plus, you know, I, I hope also, in addition to going to some of these courses that in the past we've associated with the u.s open that the uh u.s women's open can open up the array of courses that they can go to prairie dunes coming immediately to mind but there are obviously these courses that have been uh eliminated from the men's game that uh this tournament i think could go to and still create a a u.s open like atmosphere um, Will any lasting and uh, single lasting impression for you? No, I mean I think that's a really good thing to end on. Like this tournament made us excited to watch it, and it made us wanting more. I mean, women's golf it it should be on the boom with everyone, and I think more and more golf fans are coming around to that idea, and hopefully that just continues moving forward. <laughs> was edited by Meg Atkins and Garrett Morrison and uh, thanks for listening if you if you really enjoyed the podcast feel free to leave us a little review rate us review us on uh, Apple Podcasts wherever you listen to podcasts that does actually indeed help us out and uh, we got the US Open right around the corner so another major in men's golf coming and a few more women's majors coming right down the road here Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.